This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is the Reverend Lenny Duncan. He is a pastor and the author of two books, and I'm very excited for you to hear this interview with him shortly. But before we get to the interview, I do just want to share how wonderfully excited I am to see the response to the announcement of a Reverend Media Group over the last week. And since I published the little episode in this feed as well as mentioned it elsewhere online, just absolutely floored at the excitement that we've seen in regards to the announcement. And we actually have an upcoming launch event this Sunday, April 19th, that I really hope that you attend. A link for the registration to that event will be in the show notes to this show. And please check out all the other shows that are in the Irreverent Media Group launch group. I'm really excited for the potential and the promise of what's on her on the horizon for all of our shows and what it might mean for us to be able to work together. You may also have seen that I was mentioned briefly in a New York Times article about exvangelical TikTok and the uh, viral rise of Abraham Piper, who is the son of John Piper, well-known as a writer and one of the members of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, He has amassed almost an equal following to his... um, to his father on TikTok, sharing things with the exvangelical hashtag and speaking to post an exvangelical experience. So I hope you check that out. That will also be in the show notes. And I'm just absolutely uh, floored again by the response, by the response, and by uh, what we've seen in recent months and the ways in which these types of projects projects and so many others have really started to pay dividends and have started to capture the attention of a much wider audience. And I'm just very thankful uh, for each and every one of you that listens to this show and that has reached out to me and to others that make this type of content. It means a whole heck of a lot and it makes it all worth it. If you are interested and want to, you can leave a rating for the show or review it on Apple Podcasts. That does help the show. You can also follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. Search Exvangelical on Facebook to find the Exvangelical Facebook group. One quick note regarding audio quality for this episode, we did have some technical hiccups but the content of this episode is such that it really deserves to be published and please uh, bear with us in regards to this. (laughs) As always, uh, this episode was produced and edited by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, everybody, let's get to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Reverend Lenny Duncan. Lenny is a pastor and the author of two books, Dear Church, A Love Letter from a Black Preacher to the Widest Denomination in the U.S., and the forthcoming memoir, United States of Grace, a memoir of homelessness, addiction, incarceration, and hope. Reverend Duncan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. I'm a fan of the show and a fan of your work, so it's a good deal to try and connect, even though it was kind of hard. Yeah, scheduling is is oftentimes the hardest part of podcasting. So I'm glad that we were able to to get on each other's schedules and be able to talk for a little bit. So it's a chance for me to prove that like I don't just talk over AFAB people. It's just my PTSD and anxiety. And so 
this is an opportunity for me to prove that I step all over the words of of, of cis men too. That, <laughs> that it's not personal. It's just the way my brain fires. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. I like to start the show by learning a bit about my guests and, and their personal story, especially how they're raised in the role of religion in their lives. You've shared abundantly of that part of your story in your own writing, but I'd also love to start there here in our conversation. So what were those first few years of, of life like and how were you sort of exposed to religion during that time? Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents, man, they, they there were some ways that they were so incredible um and there were other ways where they just really like lacked so i mean like i was baptized catholic because that's what you did so like my because my mom would wake up in the middle of the night crying um my first my father didn't like the catholic church so he you know he didn't like any church he thought all that shit was the white man's religion he didn't want no parts of it but my mom would wake up crying and like worried about our souls like ending up in purgatory and shit mm. <laughs> So she would, uh, so eventually around, I guess I was three and my little brother was one. We went down to the local black Catholic church and were baptized. And a lot of my early experiences were sitting on the bench and like thinking about like, why are all the kids, why do all the kids, you know, in the paintings with Jesus don't look anything like me? Why do they look like my cousins who call me nigger and nigger lover? Call my mom nigger lover for marrying my dad. Um... And uh, no real, like, you know, um, uh, uh, religious kind of, like, uh, influence uh, from, you know, my black side, except for my Aunt Gussie, who, you know, I I didn't know this wasn't Christianity. Like, you know, she would rub Van Van oil on my ears and give me little saint cards to go run and do her numbers. Or, like, she was, she was very woo-woo, very conjure, very hoodoo. Um, but like she would, you know, I'd say someone was picking on me at school and she would be like, well, we need to read Psalm 69 at them, honey. (laughs) You know what I mean? Read Psalm 69 at my enemies and uh, pray together and light some incense. Now, I didn't know that wasn't Christianity till, you know, I came to the church more and y'all were like, yeah, y'all, you can't do that shit. (laughs) So, so my influences were very, um, very sparse and but i had a very early uh interest in religion um one of the first one of the first books i ever got was the bible and i finished it like you know front to front to back um that comes across in your writing that you have like a religious impulse like a you're drawn to it right yeah absolutely my parents had no way to communicate that you know what i mean for them i mean from their perspective they met and fell in love in a drug rehab uh, the whole world hated them for doing something that had been legal since like the 1700s in Pennsylvania, but had only been nationally legal for, um, I think like maybe less than 10 years when they got together. Mm. The existential crisis of my dad growing up black in America, not being able to read and, 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 and the systemic things that happened to him along the way. And, uh, you know, and, and, and my mom's own, uh, convictions right like she knew as a white woman she couldn't raise me in a white neighborhood right and that it wasn't good for me to be raised in a white neighborhood so she moved to a black neighborhood and she was the only she was the only she was the oddball she was the one who looked different um and so it raised us in black culture very intentionally and like that was not easy for her in the 70s like no one you know women were not very happy that this white woman moved on the block and and married this black man right and so i i, I look at all the things they were faced with um and i look at maslow's hierarchy and i'm like how the fuck could they ever talk to me about god you know what I mean? <laughs> like they were just trying to survive america right i was sort of left to my own devices um and at a very young age, my parents realized that my interests, um, particularly in things around intellect or academia, like really outstripped theirs. And they just encouraged me. They would just send me to the to the library. Just go to the library for the day, man. Mm. I'd sit there all day, you know, and I'd learn about, um, you know, Greek mythology. Um, that was probably one of my first uh doorways into like wow you can think about god in different ways Um, yeah i was that sort of kid too like drawn to stories uh sometimes when i think about my childhood like i was always nerdy and but superman and jesus were on equal playing field for a while (laughs) i mean uh, my cousin brought home uh the fall of the mutants for me for christmas um yeah very classic x-men storyline and Mm -hmm. um 
page I opened up to was Angel being like nailed to the wall. And I was like, I was like, wow, what's happening here with mythos, with the 12 common archetypes we see in most, you know, um, uh, religions. I realized that very early there were 12 archetypes or 12 to 14 archetype personalities that appeared in most major um, religions. Uh, ours are represented, I think, you know, you one can make the argument by the disciples. I realized that from a really young age and that, and that was from storytelling and, and, and being really attracted to that kind of stuff. I, it, it was Icarus for me that, that made sense to me. Um, man's desire to, 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 to soar, to be like the divine, um, and our constant pull to it, like a moth to a flame, knowing it'll burn us. Um, and over and over again, how we try to get close to this thing we barely understand and, is destructive at times when it enters this world and is also constructive and, and, and rebirthing and, and, and regenerative, right? Those things are, are, are very important. You know what I mean? And, um, and knowing that and, and leaning into that story, I, I re I related to Icarus. I knew I'd be a person who'd always be reaching for things they shouldn't touch. That's, that's powerful. That myth is such a, such a good encapsulation of that, of wanting more, of not knowing your limits, not knowing to stay in limits, you know, <laughs> there's so much to that story. Not listening to your own design, right? I mean, Icarus, right. it was his design, like in a lot of ways, like we, you know, they play him like the apprentice, but if not knowing the ancient system of, of, of patronage, right? Icarus to be an apprentice to his father like that, that wasn't just because that was his dad. Icarus didn't even understand his own design. Mm, which, like, yeah very telling about human nature <laughs> yes <laughs> for sure yeah so you so you're this really curious kid that's that's growing up in in difficult circumstances and i know that that's boiling things down to make and simplifying things you, you you expand on it a lot and you've written a new book that i'm sure tackles those things in more depth in those intervening years between you growing up in, in that sort of home environment that faced a lot of challenges with, from within and from without, you eventually pursue a call to ministry. What happened between those periods of from being a child to to responding to a call to, to ministry later and around 2010, I believe, is that? Yeah. The time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I have always been a vaguely religious figure my whole life. And mm. What I'll mean, what, what I mean by that is that like my pantheons have changed, my cosmologies have changed, but I've always been seeking the divine. So, I mean, early on, I left home. Um, I tried to start leaving home at 11 years old, and I eventually got very successful at it by 13 and was able to leave for several years at a time to escape some abuse. And just because I felt like, I don't know, I just at 14 years old, I realized I had a better shot out in America on my own than on the corner of 63rd and Race of living. Mm -hmm. And I just, I made a hard decision at 13 that many people in my family did not understand. Um, and, and I didn't blame my dad's abuse at the time, right? I just kept that to myself. And, um, and, and I don't, I'm not sure my dad's abuse is what spurred that, right? It was, it was a circumstance. It made it more of an option for a 13-year-old. But, I, you know, I mean, my pantheon has changed. It used to be Allen Ginsberg and Howe. And, you know, Neil Cassidy as Dean Moriarty and the Merry Pranksters and Tom Wolfe and the Electric Cord Acid Test. And like, you know, I spent my time trying psychedelics and doing ayahuasca before people even knew what the hell that was. Like yeah. 20 years ago. And like, you know, looking for the Anamita muscaria mushroom and sitting down and doing peyote cult ceremonies and taking rosewood seeds and doing mushrooms the way they're supposed to be done. And like spending time under esoteric teachers all across the country who taught all kinds of different things. Some of it amongst indigenous people, some of it amongst European people, some of it amongst African traditional religion. I spent 20 years doing that um living that sort of esoteric alternative lifestyle it wasn't until much later that i encountered an energy that i associated with jesus christ and i had no fucking idea why because that was not the direction i was headed in um and really in a lot of ways i'm still not headed in you know um and, and um but my point is is that you know for for many of those years i mean that's the stuff i was doing 
I was still out there seeking it. I was seeking it in sometimes selfish ways, sometimes very myopic ways, and in sometimes very rich, beautiful, full, life-giving ways. I think that most people are searching for the divine, whether they know it or not. Um, and that journey of reimagining, refining, reshaping, um, mm -hmm. retelling that story is the is the is the responsibility of every generation of every world, and even this one. And in the 90s, I took that responsibility very seriously with a group of friends. And we spent a lot of time just traveling around the country and really looking for those spiritual experiences in a time when no one really understood it. It was like no fear culture. Iraq is a good war. Oh, you're a faggot kind of world. You know what I'm saying? So the stuff that we did, the stuff that we believed in, and the way that we interacted with the divine and religion, that shit was all hidden. That, you know, there weren't websites to teach you how to do tarot. There was no one who was going to sit down and teach you how to do kanja or introduce you to ifa or the orisha. Like, that just didn't happen. You know what I mean? So you had to go look yeah. for this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? You had to go look for someone who could actually recite the Kabbalah. You had to go look for, you know what I mean? You had to go seek these people out in the country. And I spent most of my time doing that and following the Grateful Dead around and fish because those scenes tend to support that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. So that kind of stuff I did, man, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like taking a bunch of LSD at the Grand Canyon and like doing like, you know, pay <laughs> Like, you know, in the Grand Teton Mountains, like during a rainbow gathering where like we were only out there for a month using trading circles and like prayer and like all these like, you know, like interesting ways of living as a society and um, living on communes with friends, um, you know, and then just living by the side of the road, like really that lifestyle of someone who has no home, right? Like, you know, foxes have dens and birds have trees, but like. Um, I truly believe if you're following this thing, man, it gets to a point where you really have no sense of home anymore. Um, yeah. Spurred on by the work. So, right. I'm a rambly answer, but that's the kind of shit I did in my teens, man. I did all the shit that everyone's getting into now. That's the thing that I think um, when people are a little more, can be a little more short-sighted, they, they think that they may be reinventing the wheel, but they're discovering a tradition that predates them. I think that's true. Yeah even things like this show you know there's plenty of people there's an old ccm line i come from a long line of leavers <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's what that's what it, that's what i've been calling back to lately but it's it's that very thing it used to be it used to be harder to find now we just have hashtags to organize shit <laughs> exactly and the other part of that is is that like you know like in 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 black church and this is what my phd work is going to focus on when i announce i just got accepted to a school and we're going to talk about that probably around may and congratulations do... that's great yeah i'm very excited and it's all in the emerging religion department um and it's focusing on the connections of the early black church and conjure and ifa Vudan um, and the Lukemi because, you know, master wanted Christians. So master got Christians. Right. And so, you know, you, you know, basically it was like, are you going to leave us alone for an hour in this barn with drums so we can like be amongst our own people? Okay. What, what's that? Jesus is in charge. Sure. And so there's this rich synchronization mm. of, of, of indigenous spirituality, particularly African indigenous spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, that, 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 that begs us to explore it. Um, I, I truly believe that I don't believe that the church, um, is God's chosen vessel on earth anymore. Um, I believe 2020 was our, that was like it for us to see. Right. And if you want to know what your church body is all about, look back at what they did during 2020. Um, and I also think the second thing is, is that for black people in this land, um, the Christian church can't be our sole spiritual sustenance. It, it, it won't be enough. We'll, yeah. we'll find ourselves starving um, out, out here. Yeah. This show is primarily about people's experiences within white evangelicalism. I mean, I also have experience in, I grew up going to United Methodist churches, which is considered mainline, but is at this point in history more conservative. 
um, they're splitting over over not affirming queer people however uh you know it's still considered mainline because of the the population count of the denomination and some other factors before we get to your own sort of engagement and participation in the mainline church did you have any experiences during all of that time of spiritual seeking that you ended up in white evangelical spaces yeah i mean early on in the 90s i would be the only people who would take you in like if you were homeless and queer and like on drugs they'd be like oh we'll fix you you know like they they had lots of little shacks and you know early on in queer community um as a teenager i mean i was one of those people who witnesses white vans pull up and grab kids because their parents paid some private investigator to fucking kidnap them and take them to a reparative therapy camp and then we see them six months later with a shaved head all fucking meted up and you're like dude are you okay and like they're not right so like i i you know i grew up in the era where i saw a lot of the effects that people talk about people talk about reparative therapy like it's theory like i i have friends i've lost to that you know yeah yeah when that shit was like a real thing they did to us constantly like people i mean i had kind friends who would constantly be looking out for like white vans pulling up to snatch them mm. you know some weird bible camp um particularly in colorado when i hung out there that shit was mad popular amongst those rich oh uh, yeah yeah once dobson set up shop out there uh, it was mad popular. Shit would happen all the time. You'd be walking down Denver with some punk rock kid and like some random ass dude looks like a cop grabs him. You're all freaked out. And by the time they pull off, you realize, man, that was just some fucking pastor with a gun. Like, what is happening? Right? Um, but I, um, my first uh, foray into ministry was with uh, the Vineyard. Um, they... Mm-hmm. You know, and then the evangelicals, you know, I mean, the main lines thinks they think they have the theology and the evangelicals think they have the sociology. And in a lot of ways, they're right. Right. Um, uh, the evangelicals are just better at sociology. They just they 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 didn't understand me. They didn't know what I was about and they didn't have a way to process me. But they but but they, you know, internally or, or but but they certainly realized that I was black, charismatic and had a gift for ministry. And they and they were willing to figure it the fuck out. You know what I mean? Like, wow, when you approach the church and you say, I have a call to ministry with my kind of story, several felonies on my jacket, admitted sex worker, very queer, um, you know, and, and, and is willing to say whatever. Well, the mainline church, they want to spend four or five years sniffing you out before they let you in. Hmm. So that's like, you know. Um, so I ended up doing like a year and a half of a vineyard church plant with this white fucking team (laughs) in like the heart of like this newly gentrified area where like, you know, like my dad used to shoot heroin, like, and they're like buying condos there and talking about moving like families there. And I'm like, yeah, but like right down the street is like, like y'all don't even know the people who run all the f- like for free community driven and community supported homeless shelters. You don't know the people who run the needle exchange. You don't know the people who, who, who've been out like just walking around with brooms on Saturdays and just sweeping the entire neighborhood. You don't know the folks who've been here for like 30, 40 years. You don't know the five race riots that have happened here. You don't know shit about this neighborhood. <laughs> You know, and like, and and when I started saying things like that, I was a problem. And then I knew that we were, uh, the vineyard was going to make its decision. They had been rather ambiguous about LGBTQIA plus people. And I just kept bringing it up. Yeah. Um, Because I knew from an inside source in the vineyard, they were going to come hard right. Like, you know, uh, for a long time, it felt like they were just going to go down the middle and leave it to each individual church to Mm. decide. Um, And then that just changed at the last minute. Um, and, you know, in that very evangelical corporate way, we're, we're here to hear conversation. We realize these folks are already amongst us and we love them and we want to create a fuller vision of the kingdom of God. Right. And then six months, <laughs> you know, six months later, you're going to fucking hell. And so right. you know, uh, uh, I knew that was coming, too. So um, I was I was not a good evangelical church planter. <laughs> I'd love to hear some of your input of just how even within the the pressure cooker of the uh, of the Trump era, and especially those that are in uh, marginalized communities, have marginalized identities, how that has been made more prevalent and more clear um, over the last few years. 
Yeah, I mean, we're at a critical juncture in salvation history, in my opinion. So this is a time where you should be looking at leaders. As much as I hate the pressure of everyone looking at like every move I make, we need to be examining leaders who say that they represent the divine right now. It uh, was my assertion in Dear Church that there will be no Christian witness in America in less than 50 years if we don't wholeheartedly throw ourselves into the task of dismantling white supremacy first in our pews and then in our communities. Mm. Um, and the mainline church has a lot to do in that area. The fact that they believe that somehow they are, um, you know, like take the Episcopalian church, they own Manhattan. All right, the fact that that they own they own all of Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street, you know, Trinity Wall Street owns all the property that every major brokerage firm does every evil and awful thing that they do with, and they justify it by saying this couple billion dollar endowment is how we do good work. But like, you could also just throw those bastards out. <laughs> yeah, right? you could also just right. throw those bastards out. You, you you could. No, you, yeah. You could end Wall Street today, but you refuse to. Because you have, because they're so intellectually comforted that they are really, truly doing the best thing in the systems of the world until the second coming of Christ and all that shit they do in their heads, which isn't true. None of it's true. It's just things they're telling themselves. They're stories that they're telling themselves to give themselves courage throughout the night. Mm -hmm. is, is that this generation and the generation after it and the generation after that will not put up with white supremacy coming from the pulpit. They will not put up with reading the Gospel of John like it's not a racist document. They will not put up with us not talking about how Paul is speaking in multiple voices, and it's probably not even Paul most of the time. They will not put up with the fact that Jesus never mentions LGBTQIA people once but the church's obs obscene obsession with it. They will not know with that because these are all products of white supremacy. And as white supremacy or radical evil is revealed in this country, right? You can't you can't just suddenly say, well, yeah, it's a we don't want it in our police. We don't want it in our governors. We don't want it in our president, right? We learned that, right? Well, okay, we don't want a white supremacist, or at least an overt one, you know, as president, right? But you can't just say, but it's okay that it's inside my church. Right. It's inside my systems. I mean, you know, every mainline church in America needs to figure out if the, if their church was built by slaves. And if it was, they need to track down each one of those ancestors and pay them back everything they owe for that labor plus plus interest over the last 200 years. I mean, you know, and, and, and just that search for the UMC would rip them apart, right? I mean – you know, just that in the South alone would mean that the UMC would probably lose most of their Southern churches, right? But this is the kind of work that mainline churches have to be involved with. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is the whitest church in, denom uh, in, in the nation, according to the Pew studies, right? It is the whitest church. We have, we're 96% white, and we're also placed in all those um, voter districts that voted for Trump in 2016 and a lot of them who voted in 2020. And so for, you know, the ELCA to throw its hands up, you know, my own denomination say, well, we, you know, we, we can only preach the gospel. No, you could do a lot more. You're literally in all the places that are the problem right now. You could be turning the tide. You could be bringing people together. You could be preaching a gospel of liberation instead what, 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 what most mainline denominations have done is they split the difference. They spent the last four years because they know conservatives gives more. And this is really the progressives' fault. Progressives don't give to church. So why would they listen to you? Just, just thinking about survival, right? Institutionally, right? If, I, if I'm an institutionalist and I know my main base does not believe in Black Lives Matter. I know my main base does not believe that queer people should be affirmed. I'm talking financially, right? right. Yeah. Why right. the Right. So 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 the progressives play a part in this, too. We don't invest. Right. And and look, I'm all for not investing in the institution. But where's that investment going? Right. Sure. And so 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 that's the other thing, too, is why would they listen to us at these times? So they split the difference. They 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 say these things or they put out these statements that go right down the middle. Right. Because all they care about is preserving their institution. They no longer care for the people of God. 
and they have advocated their responsibilities systemically across mainline denominations. They just have. They just, I mean, dude, what, we could have ended those ICE hearings in a year if every major mainline bishop just showed up to every ICE hearing in their area and just sat there in full regalia, not saying a word, to remind that judge that the eyes of God are upon them. Right? And, then, and, and every judge, because judges have to run for office, Every prosecutor, because DAs have to run for office, right? Every federal person, right, who realizes that the senator there is the one who put him there, and if they remove the senator, they're screwed, right? They realize that that bishop represents thousands of people who are outraged. So outraged, they sent the respective, you know, the representative of their entire religion to watch. You know, that kind of stuff, you know? They, they, they didn't do any of that. They put out these statements, they, they put out letters, they, they, they had these teach-ins, they did anti-racism training, that shit has never worked in the history of America. And, and, and they refused to do the real work, the real work. What would it have meant when George Floyd died if every mainline bishop, including the national leaders, got together, put on sackcloth, and threw ashes on their head? Mm -hmm. Live-streamed it. And wept and wailed at their part in white supremacy. We don't get that from them. We get Harvard business plans and uh, professional uh, 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 trainings. We, we get corporate stuff from them, but we never get the stuff that they are actually called to do. Particularly the Episcopalian and the Lutheran Church who believe in apostolic succession and all that kind of stuff. If you think you're sitting on the throne of St. Peter, then why won't you act like it? But they don't do that. They don't do the, the, the sweet, fragrant nard and, and, and ritual and stuff that we've used for thousands of years to turn the eyes of God upon the plight of the people. They refuse to do that shit. They'll fire me, though. They'll do that. That's what they'll do. It's weird, man. It's a weird time to be a Christian and to be a mainline leader. I know I'm 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 incredibly compromised by even being connected to the institution. And what's that even mean to me? How do I move forward? So yeah, I could rant all day about the mainlines and their part in this. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. And your book, Dear Church, that you talk about uh, in confronting white, white supremacy, again, in the pews, as well as in the public sphere and elsewhere, you chart a path in this order, repentance, then reparations, then reconciliation. Could you elaborate on why that sequence is important in this context? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, mostly what the church does is like, yo, my bad for all the racism, right? Every five years, a major denomination puts out some statement like, yo, dude, my bad. They, uh, the ELCA put out a statement, which was like, basically, sorry to black people, right? Like at the last churchwide assembly. I mean, I forget what they called it, but it's basically a, an apology letter. And, and the problem is with that is that reconciliation can become oppressive when you just think you deserve it. Mm -hmm. Believe they deserve reconciliation. I've not met a white person yet who doesn't believe deep down in their heart they deserve reconciliation. And I'm not saying they don't. What I'm saying is, is that if we repent, if we make amends, if we have broken the covenant, if we have broken trust with an entire people group, we need to repair the damage we did first so those people can be lifted up to a level similar to yours and then they can actually contemplate forgiveness for you. I can't contemplate forgiveness for you when my stomach is empty. 
I cannot contemplate forgiveness for you when my peers in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America almost always make less than their white peers in the area and all you know have no retirement and their churches are always harried and are struggling for budget and can't seem to make ends meet right i can't i can't think about that stuff i can't think about how like it is true and right that we should gather people for the cause of peace and reconciliation together until i'm on the same level as the very person who oppressed me and put me in that position in the first place Reparations are needed before the, Amer the black American consciousness can even contemplate forgiveness. And that's the thing, right? Like people are so worried about reparations. Black people are looking for equality. You should be lucky we're not looking for vengeance. Right? I mean, that's the thing, right? We're, you know, so, I mean, we're just looking for equality when we talk about reparations. And that's why it's incredibly important. It's an incredibly important spiritual thing too, right? Jesus repaired the damage that a broken world had done to people, right? They came to Christ for almost anything, right? But mostly what he offered the individual was healing, mercy, and forgiveness, Right, but he repaired the damage that was happening with a divorced woman. Right, he answers the question, so all divorced women, right, won't have to be under this oppressive system where every time a rabbi sees something younger and cuter down the street, he basically makes his former wife homeless and takes the kids with him, which was the retirement plan in the first century. But Jesus is speaking out against the way women are being treated. Mm -hmm. So, I mean. I don't know, man. I guess, you know. <laughs> no, this is all yeah. gold. This is all fire. This is all fire. I'm not. I'm too old to be able to say that, but I said it anyways. <laughs> it's just incredibly um, frustrating to be in these constant, you know, conversations with these institutions where they're like, "Well, we want all. We want black people here, and we right. want black culture, and we want your leadership, but we don't want to pay any price for that." Yeah. You know, you wrote a book called Dear Church because of the way that word is used in our language is addressed to people and it's also addressed, addressed the institutions we're talking about, right? Right. So how do you see the church now since publishing that book a couple of years ago? You've got another book coming out. How do you see that relationship in the church itself or the broader church respond to the things that we so desperately need to respond to and refuse to ignore in uh, our national conversation, and our local conversations about Christian nationalism and white supremacy, and how those things can be addressed in meaningful ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, when I was walking around and telling people that theology was incredibly important to politics in 2018, everyone thought I was full of shit. Right. Everyone's like, yeah, 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 kind of. But like, how could white supremacy ever do anything like you're saying? Like, how could it ever lead to, like, a popular white uprising where they try and overthrow the government when you're crazy, right? That's the kind of stuff I would hear in 2018. Now, you fast forward to 2020, and, you know, and, and, and then, you know, the, the capital uprising, and then, like, you see the results, that theology matters, that, that, that yeah. what you're teaching people matters, um, uh, that, that, that the covenant between pastor and community is incredibly broken, right? We're supposed to be thinking about what's the best for the wider community, not just the people in our pews. And how do we keep just getting a paycheck? So that 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 covenant's been shattered for a long time. Um, we know that. Um, but you know, since I wrote the book, uh, I mean, it's kind of cool to hear people using language that 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 I either introduce them to or popularize in my denomination. Mm -hmm. um, but I got to be honest, I think the biggest lesson is, is that uh, if you stay with the people, you'll always look like a leader. I don't believe that the church is God's chosen vessel on earth anymore. And that almost broke me. Um, I really believe March of 2020, a, a, a almost year long spiritual awakening um, happened to the entire world. And if you're one of those people who experienced it and your life has been rebuilding into something completely new and you have no idea why, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Either you're awake to it or you're not awake to it. I'm done trying to convince people it's real. Like, 
something happened and the whole world shifted. Yeah. Um, I think in that moment, it almost it felt like to me like the Holy Spirit or the spirit or the divine was moving away from institutions and to the people. And um, that really, to be honest, that really fucked me up um, that I was serving a thing that no longer served God. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that I think the church has really lost any any um, chance of leading the way that way, which is not bad news. Right. Because what that invites the church into is an opportunity that if this is it, then we can use all our resources, all our energy, all our gifts, all our time, our talent and our treasures to prepare people for what comes next. Yeah. To prepare the world for what comes next. Right. To, uh, uh, um, to 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 prepare leaders for what comes next right yeah. and so it, it it is it's it's it, it really is an incredible time full of opportunity if we're able to shift our perspective but i don't believe that the church really has a role to play anymore in this um except for um preparing for resurrection and that's hard for our institutions to swallow the fact that because um, white supremacy will be the death of them. There is no way around it. Um, they are like changing seats on the Titanic, a lot of them. You know, they, 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 you know, my own denomination just introduced this new church plan, which, you know, is based off a of Harvard business class. It's like, okay, we're going to base the gospel of Jesus Christ off a of Harvard business class. Cool. And you don't see how in any way organizational leadership might be the antithesis of what Jesus Christ was doing. Okay. Okay. I guess I'm the stupid one. Right. Right. And so, and so, uh, and, and, and not being able to, to, to recognize the moment we're in, I think is the biggest thing I noticed. You know, I, one person got it the whole dear church tour. Um, and it was like one of those stops. And I don't know if you've ever done a book tour. They're the fucking worst. Um, I, I know some people love them. not yet. <laughs> I, you know, and I was like selling a book that they told me. They only printed 3,000 copies of Dear Church. They said, you, there's no way you'll sell more, you'll sell more than 3,000 in the first year. And like I sold those pre-ordered. And then they were like, okay, well, you're not going to sell more than this. And I kept selling out. Dear, Dear Church would have done better. I think it sold like close to like 40,000 copies at this point. Oh, that's, but it, That's great. But it would have sold a lot more because at first they were like, this book is it. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah, they just didn't believe in it, you know, um, really. And uh, so it, that meant me packing up my book in my suitcase. I used to carry two suitcases with me, two carry-ons, right? Because that's what I got, two carry-ons. So I would carry two carry-ons with me, um, one full of books and one full of like clothes for the weekend. And I spent like 30 weeks. 30 weekends out of the year, that first year, going to churches and talking about my book. Mm. And, then, and then coming back and preaching. So I'd leave Monday, Tuesday. Um, I'd get back Wednesday to New York. I'd run my church all the way through Sunday. I'd sleep for like a couple hours on Sunday, and I'd go right back to JFK and fly out. And I did that for like 30 weeks. And um, I heard, you know, and some of the events would have like hundreds of people, and some of them would have like two. And talk to people about these ideas and one woman got it this little old woman and it was like one of those stops like i was tired i just presented the day before and got a little puddle jumper to like present again and they like packed my schedule and i wasn't paying attention so i had like this clergy meal because they always had these clergy meals with me like i'm gonna break out some secret that i don't say to everyone else if it's just clergy in a room it's like <laughs> the most arrogant shit ever and 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 you know and like i'm tired i'm beat up i think i'm in the middle of wisconsin like or minnesota like i'm just fucking there's there's not even a good place to eat like it's that like i'm just middle of nowhere mm -hmm. and um and i'm black right that's always the thing and uh little old lady stands up late at night last question i can't even handle it and she says you know reverend duncan i don't mean to be disrespectful but if I took all the suggestions out of your book, um, what you're suggesting is that we deconstruct institutional church. 
we no longer use it as a model going forward. And I said, yeah. If you took all the suggestions out of my book, that's what it would mean at the end of the day. Mm. And she got it. She got that I'm not talking, I'm not writing a love letter to a system I'm trying to save. I'm writing a love letter to a dying friend. Yeah. That's a big truth. And uh, sometimes you just got to sit with it. <laughs> well, let's talk about your new book. Um, this is a memoir. So what do you tackle in, in this book? And yes. I, I know we, we, we talked a little bit about whether you wanted to read, read some from it or, you know, however you want to handle this part. I, but I do want to, uh, to talk about your upcoming book that's coming out uh, very soon. So. so United States of Grace, and you can find uh, anything about it on UnitedStatesOfGrace.com. Um, that's where all my stuff is. Uh, so when I wanted to write Dear Church, uh, my, my acquisition editor, uh, Lisa Kloskin, has probably been the, over at Broadleaf Books. That's probably been the greatest creative collaboration of my life, right? Um, she just really helped me understand the industry in a way that I didn't get, right? Um, and I, I'm like a lot of like, I'm a good writer. Shouldn't that be enough? And then you meet the <laughs> And the industry's like, fuck no, that's not enough. Like, who are you? <laughs> I didn't know it was like that. And they're like, yeah, it's it's definitely like that, bro. Like they <laughs> Broadleaf was much more gentler, but that's what I ran into. And that's why I have so much uh a loyalty with them. That's why I just signed another three book deal with them, even though this book's coming out. Um like I just, you know, they 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 get, I'd rather be in a smaller pond where I, you know, I'm treated a little bit better. But anyway, you know, in that first conversation, the first book I pitched was this book. It was and at the time it was called Trajectory of Grace because I was obsessed with the idea. Um, in the hood, we always talk about this. The worst thing to get shot with is a 22 because the bullets bounce around in your body. Um, so they hit your bones and they change direction. And so I was comparing grace to that. I was comparing grace to the way a bullet moves in your body. And how it feels very disruptive and like it's ripping you apart. Um, and so I was pitching the memoir based on that idea. And uh, she said, you know, Len, you really got to tell people a thing and then you can tell them a story. And so Dear Church was their pitch to me about a book to write. Um, and I said, OK. Yeah. And, so, and, you know, the, and the promise agreement was is that, you know, and if it did well, they'd give me a shot at a second book. United States of Grace is a lot of things. In a lot of ways, it's an attempt to defend the Republic from the perspective of someone who's never had the principles, I mean, the, the privileges or the rights of a citizen. So defending the principles, even though I've never had the chance to experience them. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, it's a story. It's my story uh, uh, told very opaquely. Um, in a lot of ways, um, I talk about my personal reflections about my life, um, but I leave other people's stories very opaque because that's their story to tell. Um, yeah. I, hate when, I hate when writers do that. Um, but I take the seven worst things that ever happened to me, uh, my sexual assault, um, uh, spending a year and a half in solitary, um, uh, being homeless, uh, my abuse as a child. Um, and the things I've experienced uh, in this country of racism and the stuff in the church. And I use those as a jumping off place to talk about how much hope, grace, and mercy there is in this country. And setting aside our leaders, setting aside our institutions, and setting aside all of that, what this republic is, is moments like this. Hmm. Where two people lower their disposition to each other just enough just enough that the Imagio day can peek through and we realize wow i'm sitting on the other side of that screen or i'm on the other side of that table or i'm over there on the other side of that room just like i'm here and that that's the republic and that's worth believing in that's worth fighting for um and 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 that's something they can never take away from us i mean you know we are the republic mm. And our stories are the Republic. Yeah. So 
um, it, 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 it's an attempt to really make this argument that, that perhaps there is something of worth still here, and perhaps it's the people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I, I can't, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, sorry. That's the that's the argument or the or or the idea I'm trying to convey. Um, you know, I look. It was looking writing a book about how much hope there is in the country was not looking good in the middle of 2020. <laughs> wow, did you pick the wrong subject? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that that's a that's a challenging assignment <laughs> and, uh, in the middle of 2020. Oh man, and so I um and the and and the um not the preface but the epilogue ends on the day um three days after George Floyd is killed. And you know, um anyway, I'm gonna read a little bit from it and yeah. uh, yes, go go right ahead. Awesome. Uh, I'm gonna tell you about my life and the country I love through a series of tragedies and stories that are deeply personal or filled with pain and struggle. It might actually horrify some of you. It will be a vast array of trauma and things no one should have to go through. It's in these really broken places that I will try and tell you about love and grace. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid you'll misunderstand me or think that I'm trying to paint a rosy picture around the stark industrial land, wasteland that is this country. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that when I give you almost all of me, I can stand that you will weigh me and find me wanting of the things that you've come here for, that you will see me plant gorgeous, vibrant, living things next to death and white supremacy in the same paragraph, the same sentence even, and think I don't see the paradox or the utter ridiculousness that is my hope for you, for us, for myself, for this country, for these things that many would have you believe that you don't deserve to hope for anymore. I'm afraid that if you are white, you'll walk away saying this isn't the America I know. And if you are black, you will say this damn fool still believes in their lives. I am afraid that if you are a person of color, you will feel left out of the narrative. I am afraid that if you are queer in this country, you may wonder why I'm comparing our incredibly glorious way of loving each other and the world to the heteronormative paradigms that only seem to bring misery to us, that you will wonder why I keep setting the bar at what a heteronormative society has deemed as love, even though we know it's a whitewashed tomb bereft of the hope of the resurrection. I am afraid. And I'm so damn tired of being afraid. And I'm willing to bet you are too. I'm willing to gamble on the fact that you're tired of hiding in the shadows and the ambiguity of grace. You're tired of being wedged between mercy and despair. We're all sick of the actual magnificence of this country being obscured by monstrous leaders who are jerking off to fever dreams about nationalism. We're all so over the tired narrative that nothing is woke enough, which leads to the oppression Olympics where no definable chain actually happens while we're too busy policing each other because the riot police are tear gassing our neighbors. Tired of the narrative, there's nothing of worth in this place. I live, I love, and I breathe in. Tired of being afraid to say that grace is real. And it's real for this country. I'm tired of feeling like my life will be dashed against the rocks of iniquity moments after it dares to be reborn. And we know what this fear is. This mounting evil slowly but surely marching from the benches of Atlantic City to five points in Atlanta that's interjecting itself into conversations in Des Moines like the rising floodwaters in Houston. We already know what this evil is. We know it isn't the people. And our fate isn't different than that of others who were brought here as cargo. We are the story of our indigenous siblings whose homes was destroyed by our very presence. We are the scared 18-year-old kid who isn't so much storming the beaches of Normandy as being thrown out of a boat into a greater battle well beyond his capability to grasp. We are the scared little girl walking to a school surrounded by National Guard troops for the crime of wanting to learn. We are amazing, even when the story of this country isn't. I would suggest that it is the responsibility of every generation to carry on this never-ending battle for freedom. But more importantly, it's our job to capture the story of each of us and treat those stories as sacred. Mm. Here and now, 
we get to write the scripture of the future. It may not get into the canon, but we can't deny that stories have a way of speaking to us in deep, hidden, inner recesses of our souls. And so that's a brief excerpt from the preface of the United States of Grace, and it gives kind of an idea where it's headed. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm real excited to, to read that. That is really powerful. I, I would love to sort of just leave it on that note and just sort of reflect on that. I do think you're really hitting on some powerful truths there about it's our stories. It's not the institutions that don't serve us well anymore. There's a lot there. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that for a bit. <laughs> It's what James Baldwin said, right? At the end of an empire, you can only trust the report of poets. Mm. Mm-hmm. The only reason we know of Rome is because of Homer. Yeah. That's it. That's why we know, <laughs> why we know of Rome, because of Homer, right? And that poet spurred an entire empire with his yeah. poem. That was the inspiration for the entire Roman Empire was Homer's principle. Yeah. Did, uh, there's a one of my favorite poems is uh, um, there's this um, I have a collection of uh, poems called it's actually the collection is called the wild god of the world mm. by, Ro- by Robinson Jeffers um, and he actually has this beautiful poem called shine perishing republic mm. and it was written almost a hundred years ago even then this poet could see I've thought of it of America always being either it's always either dusk or dawn. <laughs> yeah, never it's 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 never each day here is either dusk or dawn, and it's strange to be in a period that feels like a long night. Yeah, right. It's we've been in a long night, and um, that's how I describe it to my friend. He's like spiritually, how would you describe it simply? I would say America is in the midst of the long night, and and the yeah. dawn is day, but it's going to be a long night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, and I'm I'm excited to see uh, what 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 your book uh, reminds people of, what it spurs them to. So, uh, Reverend Duncan, thank you so much for for uh, sharing some of your time with me today and learning a little bit about your story, about your work, about your writing. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can they find more information again about the book? I know you mentioned the the website uh, or anything else you might want to plug here. Yeah, uh, unitedstatesofgrace.com. You can find links to all my stuff. That's unitedstatesofgrace.com. Um, and I'm Lenny A. Duncan on everything. And I'll add you on social media. I'm known for that. Like, I don't care. I'll add you. <laughs> like, I, you know, like some of my social media profiles are full and shit, but I'll add you. And like, you know, I'll even interact with you. So Lenny A. Duncan on literally everything. Um, I'm not my Twitter and I'm not my books, so you'll find that to be a little disconcerting if you ever get to know me. But, you know, um, the book drops May 18th. Uh, we're going to do a, a live event that uh, out of Pacific Lutheran Seminary. Um, we're going to make a whole, a whole series of announcements that day, not just about the book, but about the new direction of my ministry and stuff like that. Um, and so... Super excited for that. Please pick up the book. Pre-orders are huge. Uh, Black intellectual thought is under attack. It is not allowed to be in the publishing industry. If you want to support a black writer, if you believe in reparations, if any of this shit has resonated with you, pre-order my book. That's how I hit the list. That's how I end up on the New York Times or in USA Today. That's how you help a writer. You take a risk on them. Mm-hmm. You take a risk on them before anyone else has seen it. And that's and that's really the most effective way you can help me, my ministry, my work I do with the BIPOC Faith Leaders Councils here um, here in Portland, which is my on-the-ground uh, activism that I don't talk about publicly because I hate people who do that shit. Um, you know, like, that's how you support that work, right, is is, is you, you buy my book, you know, and you pre-order it, and that's how you do it. Um, I'll have a new podcast coming out with PRX that will be nationally syndicated. Um, well, I'll be talking more about that. So plenty of stuff to plug in the next couple of weeks. But for right now, it's all about United States of Grace. I really want to have a sincere conversation um, about what's the future of this republic. Mm. You know, and I want to have it publicly. And that's why I wrote this book by, you know, standing naked in a room full of strangers. So hopefully you can see yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
if what if what you're uh, what you shared is any indication i think it'll it'll serve that purpose well so thank you very much for joining me reverend duncan absolutely Blake. thank you for having me First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.